Hi, I'm Eric Foss, and episode two of Game of Thrones final season reminded us that in the face of oblivion, nothing warms a heart quite like romance. Like Arya showing Gendry that the real staff she wanted was his, and Tormund Giantsbane's love of giant milk making us all suddenly lactose intolerant. Welcome back to another in-depth scene-by-scene analysis filled with hidden meanings and connections. The subtle details satisfy that inner child who watches TV shows the way Bran watches people's souls. By the way, we really gotta talk about that inner child. He's scaring the other inner children. Spoiler warning if you haven't watched the episode yet and let's dive deep starting with some missable updates to the opening credits check out my other breakdown of the new season 8 opening credits but this sequence includes updates of the flipping blue tiles to represent the white walkers progress having advanced further beyond last hearth which by the way takes the shape of a spiral to reflect how the night king arranged the dead ned umber in a spiral of shrimp cocktail severed limbs these episode two credits also show the new fortifications being constructed around Winterfell. Among them is a pit of fire that encircles the castle. The opening image shows Jamie Lannister standing trial upon his return of Winterfell, but not on trial for the crime that we expected. Daenerys brings up her brother Viserys and their anger toward the Kingslayer who killed their father, the Mad King. When Danny returned to Westeros in season seven, her costume was updated to a black and crimson palette that was meant as a reference to the wardrobe of her late brother who dreamt of invading Westeros with the Dothraki army and dragons. In recent episodes, Danny switched to lighter gray fur as a way to show her trying to win the North's loyalty and, yeah, to stay warm. But now, as a judge of this Kingslayer trial, her fur appears darker with the crimson streaks really coming out to once again reflect Targaryen wrath over the throne that was, in her eyes, stolen from her and her brother by Jaime. When Jaime confirms Cersei's troops are not coming, Tyrion is now in the hot seat as Danny's angry gaze redirects on him, Varys curiously leans his bald head over Tyrion's shoulder to get a better look at Danny publicly scolding the hand. After Tyrion's many mistakes, he's feeling the heat of other potential advisors angling to replace him as Hand of the Queen, including Varys. Jaime refuses to apologize for killing the Mad King, or for attacking Ned Stark and King's Landing, snapping, Everything I did, I did for my house and my family. I'd do it all again. And Bran, having finally found someone to wheel him inside, chimes in, The things we do for love. That's the kind of fire Bran should consider spitting at the Night King. Bran is of course calling back Jamie's words from the first episode, the things we do for love, push, and throwing this famous quote back in Jamie's face rattles him, just like quoting chaos is a ladder was to Littlefinger in the way it ruined his life. Chaos is a ladder. Jamie's passion self-defense echoes his anger over Ned Stark's judgment that he shared with Brienne back in season three. By what right does the wolf judge the lion? And it's Brienne who now steps in to defend Jamie, literally standing in between Jamie and his potential executioners. Just like how Jamie shielded her during her deadliest trial against the bear. Brienne recalls Jamie defending her from Vargo Hode and his whole rapey band of bloody mummers, which cost Jamie his hand, and she brings up the oath that he kept to Sansa's mother Catelyn to send Brienne to keep Sansa alive. This oath was the namesake of Brienne's sword, Oathkeeper. This episode is titled A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, which Jaime later anoints Brienne as, but more broadly, the term applies to several knights this episode, chief among them, Jaime Lannister, as the central character of this hour. His loyalties as a knight are on trial here. He broke his sacred vows by killing Danny's father, and now he must prove that he's no longer a knight for just House Lannister, but a knight fighting for all of mankind. The side eye is again full of hidden subtext. 
When Sansa forgives Jaime, the focus suddenly shifts to Daenerys in the background, staring daggers at Sansa. Last episode used this same exact focus shift when Danny looked over at Sansa and warned her that the dragons will eat whatever they want. This is the beginning of Daenerys' downward spiral of authority and influence this episode. Hopefully it's not the kind of spiral that Ned Umber found himself in. Daenerys chastises Tyrion for his repeated failure, snapping, Cersei still sits on the Iron Throne. If you can't help me take it back, I'll find another hand who can. And before huffing off, Danny briefly looks up at Jorah. Jorah and Varys are positioned directly behind Tyrion, reflecting the exact line of succession for Hand of the Queen, should Danny ever oust Tyrion. These other two suitors are literally waiting in line. My queen, wait, talk to me, I understand you. I think Tyrion's strategic blunders are actually setting them up for a major victory in the wars to come. More on that later. Down in the forges, Arya watches Gendry with a glint of fascination, not unlike her curious glances at him back at Harrenhal and season two, Arya questions Gendry about his experience with the White Walkers, asking his kill count and how they move, but he cuts her off. This is death. You want to know what they're like? Death. That's what they're like. And Arya responds, batteranging some dragonglass spearheads into the wall. I know death. He's got many faces. I look forward to seeing this one. Arya is echoing her experience with the faceless men who worship the many-faced god. And Arya's precision, which she also shows off with her archery later on, is a callback to her showing up Bran in the pilot episode. Bran meets Jamie in the godswood, freeing Jamie from the guilt of crippling him, saying that the push was a pivotal moment in both their destinies, that Jamie would still be a selfish piece of crap if he hadn't pushed Bran, and Bran would still be Brandon Stark instead of, in his words, something else something else, as in a tree on wheels. This is a noble lie kept by Bran to hide the truth about Jaime in order to spare their people further chaos and self-destruction. But Bran sends off Jaime with a cryptic warning. How do you know there is an afterwards? Yes, I am something else, a wet blanket. What exactly Bran knows about the future is a mystery, because in the past he has said that its visions come to him in fragments like pieces of a puzzle. But here he's suggesting that they could lose this coming battle, perhaps fulfilling the doom-filled imagery of the preseason aftermath teaser which included Jamie's hand in the snow without Jamie. Jamie joins Tyrion to observe the preparations, including the construction of wooden caltrops. Caltrops are defensive structures used as far back as the Romans to protect against cavalry charges and chariots. But this kind of structure has been used for several generations throughout history. Modern examples including the concrete Czech hedgehogs that line the beaches of Normandy. Here they're covering the wood with dragonglass spikes. I assume to force swarming whites and white walkers into. The same spikes cover the castle battlements and logs that they can use to swing down and wipe out swarming zombie whites, much like the massive log that the Night's Watch used against the wildlings in season four. Tyrion waxes poetic by talking about his dick, again, telling Jamie, I always pictured myself dying in a warm bed at the age of 80 with a belly full of wine and a girl's mouth around my cock. Jamie actually finishes the sentence, meaning that this must have been a thing Tyrion used to say a lot. But we did hear him say this exact thing to Shaga back in season one. How would you like to die, Tyrion, son of Tywin? In my own bed, at the age of 80, with a belly full of wine, a girl's mother on my cock. But then Tyrion goes into a more interesting idea about Cersei. Maybe after I'm dead, I'll march down to King's Landing and rip her apart. Hmm, this isn't the first time Tyrion actually wished harm to his sister. Remember back in season two, after she hurt Roz, he didn't take it well, promising, I will hurt you for this. The day will come when you think you are safe and happy, and your joy will turn to ashes in your mouth, and you will know the debt is paid. If Tyrion ends up being the one to kill Cersei, that would fulfill the Valonqar prophecy from the books, in which that witch foretold that Cersei would 
would die at the hands of the Valonquar, the Valerian word for younger brother. Theorists have interpreted that to mean Jamie, but it could also refer to Tyrion. Outside, soldiers dig trenches and fill them with sharpened pikes. Grey Worm and other Unsullied rig up a trapped collapsible bridge. Now we saw these trenches in the opening credits, so part of their defensive measures appears to be a moat of fire, trapping any invading white zombie on the flaming pikes, thinning this line down to just the White Walkers themselves, where I presume that they hope that all that dragon glass will come in handy. Jamie confesses to Brienne that he's not the fighter he used to be and wishes to serve under her command. Jamie's feeling of inadequacy comes from his missing sword hand, of course, but also from the fact that his sword is mere one half of a whole. He carries Widow's Whale, Joffrey's old sword, which along with Brienne's sword Oathkeeper, which used to belong to Jamie, were both formerly the same sword, Ned Stark's Valyrian steel sword, Ice. Brienne and Jamie's unity as a fighting force feels like the reforging of Ice and Ned Stark's legacy of honor living on through these characters. Sir Jorah, another honorable knight of the Seven Kingdoms this episode, counsels Daenerys to forgive Tyrion and to make peace with Sansa. Sansa shares her concerns that Danny is manipulating Jon, saying, men do stupid things for women. She's alluding to her brother, Rob, who married Talisa instead of honoring his deal with Walder Frey. She's worried that Jon is also being blinded by love, another example of Sansa invoking her mother's caution. But then Sansa wonders about after this war, apparently not hearing the three-eyed buzzkill warning about this afterward talk. What about the North? It was taken from us. We took it back. And we said we would never bow to anyone else again. What about the North? And the hand-holding stops. Actually, when the maester comes in, Sansa discreetly slides her hands off the table altogether, as if taking this whole fleeting friendship off the table. Because this dragon queen wants Sansa to forget about her definitive victory over the Boltons, which Sansa reminds us with this loving embrace of Theon, who escaped with her from the Boltons in season six. Another honorable knight, Sir Davos, meets this feisty girl with a burn scar on her cheek, reminding him of Shireen Baratheon, unfortunate daughter of Stannis Baratheon who taught him how to read and whose face was scarred with grayscale and yeah got burned alive. Composer Ramin Jawadi even snuck in a subtle music cue with Shireen's theme as this girl talks. Davos and Gilly convince this little badass to defend the crypt which this episode states no less than six times is the safest place in Winterfell. Yeah, that can't be a good sign. The White Walkers resurrect corpses, people, so what's to stop them from raising the corpses in the Winterfell crypts? Now, sure, some of you saying most of the Stark ancestors are bones at this point, but I'll remind you that many of the white zombies don't appear to be much more than skeletons. And in the teaser for next week, there was this interesting line from Daenerys, the dead are already here, as in downstairs, where most of the vulnerable Vulnerable people are hanging out in the not at all safe zone. Yikes. So Sansa, Gilly, her baby, Varys, and Shireen 2.0 might have a more terrifying fight on their hands than they expected. Hopefully this little girl won't turn into a white because I don't want to see Sir Davos have to set her on fire. Moving on to this War Council meeting, which contains probably the most hidden clues of this episode. The showrunners actually hinted that these battle plans are intended to be assumptions of what will happen, just to set up next episode that say a big F you to those expectations. John outlines their strategy. The Night King made them all. They follow his command. If he falls, getting to him may be our best chance. So John is building on the detail he learned from last season during his mission north of the Wall, when he killed a White Walker and all the Whites under that White Walker's command disintegrated as well. The Night King was the first White Walker, patient zero of this whole race. 
In addition to resurrecting thousands of white corpses for his army, he created the White Walker generals in his own image by transforming babies. So John is assuming that the White Walker chain structure extends from foot soldier to the general level to the general to the Night King level as well. So that killing the Night King is like striking at the heart or the brain and causing the whole army of the dead body to fall apart. But we don't know if this assumption is accurate. Like John's been wrong before. But Bran introduces an interesting twist. Shocking everyone in the room that this potted plant can actually talk. He'll come for me. He's tried before many times with many three-eyed ravens. Bran explains what he believes the Night King truly wants, an endless night, to erase this world and its memory. Bran is suggesting that the Three-Eyed Raven is the living history of Westeros, a courtroom stenographer who never blinks. We're not entirely sure of the Three-Eyed Raven's origin, whether he was created by the Children of the Forest as their club historian, or if the Three-Eyed Raven is a result of the old gods speaking through the weirwood trees through a succession of human spokespeople to protect the world from destruction. In either case, this knowledge is power, making the Three-Eyed Raven the ultimate threat to the Night King. Sam elaborates, saying, that's what death is, isn't it? Forgetting, being forgotten. If we forget where we've been and what we've done, we're not men anymore, just animals. Yeah, Sam is a history nerd in the comments saying, um, isn't this just Chairman Mao and his four olds all over again? Uh, me. Me. Yeah, that's that's me. And you know what? Sam's right. Knowledge of history has always been the deadliest tool for these characters. Whether it's Ned Stark studying the royal lineage to learn the Lannister conspiracy, or Sam learning about Jon's true lineage from stolen library books. He was right to brag about that. Bran and Sam are evoking that expression that you might have heard, where we all die twice, once when we take our last breaths, and again when someone mentions our name for the final time. The quote is credited to Banksy, but it's actually a concept by Irvin Yalom, who said, Someone very old is the last living individual to have known some person or cluster of people. When that person dies, the whole cluster dies too, vanishes from the living memory. I wonder who that person will be for me, whose death will make me truly dead. So, in the same way that this human cluster is concerned with protecting their existence through an ancient memory link, so too are the White Walkers, with the Night King's death meaning the erasure and the death of the full cluster of White Walkers. Bran shows them the Night King's mark, which he received back in Season 6 when Bran took on the Three-Eyed Raven role. That mark was kind of a magical homing beacon for the Night King to find them under the Great Weirwood Tree, and now Bran believes that the Night King is returning to finish a job, and he plans to lure him in as bait in the godswood. But the truth is Bran's always trying to get outside. He needs the sunlight to help with his photosynthesis. This explains Jon's tactic to keep Daenerys' dragons closer to the Winterfell godswood, when to be honest, them unleashing fire on the full army of the dead would be a lot more useful. See, Jon assumes that the Night King and Viserion will aim for Bran in the Godswood, and he wants the dragons to be waiting close by, hoping that killing the Night King will domino the rest of the army. The map on the table shows the rest of their battle plan, and even though the soldiers are focused northward, the rest of the castle is surrounded by a pike trench, which they plan to light ablaze. So rather than send the dragons out into the fray, which could lead to the Night King killing and converting a second or even a third dragon, they're playing defense and smartly hiding behind this ring of fire. Theon pledges to protect Bran with the Ironborn, which brings Theon full circle from when he tried to overtake Winterfell and force Bran to yield in season two. I've taken your castle, Theon! 
Tyrion hangs back to pick Bran's brain, you know, stump the stump. Tyrion is returning to what has always been the source of his power, knowledge, cleverness. And hopefully the new insights he gains from Bran will give him a new purpose. So what secrets did Bran impart on Tyrion? Perhaps the nature of the Night King's origin with the Children of the Forest, plunging Dragonglass into the heart of a man at a weirwood tree, setting up Tyrion maybe to help Bran lure the Night King back into a parallel setup to try to end him. Or maybe Jon's true identity, giving Tyrion greater cause to make sure Jon makes it out of this battle alive, even if it's at Daenerys' expense. Or perhaps Tyrion learned the strange nature of Bran's perception of time, other historical events that Bran might have influenced beyond Hodor, like turning the Mad King mad. Or simply, maybe Tyrion just learned from Bran exactly how disastrous this Battle of Winterfell will be for them. Because the next scene we see Tyrion, what's he doing? Drinking. He drinks because he knows things. Jamie joins him at the hearth along with Brienne, Podrick, Davos, and Tormund, bringing some solid comic relief, calling Jamie King Killer and not King Slayer. And he tells everyone this TMI story about killing a giant when he was 10, then climbing into bed with a giant wife, breastfeeding from her for three months, all while chugging from this big horn of milk. This could just be another campfire story from Tormund. Remember back in season four, similarly before battle, Tormund cheered everyone up with this story of betting a bear. Her fangs were sharp, but she knew how to use them. She was nice and soft down below. She was no ordinary beast. Later, Tyrion tells them, I think we might live. His argument rests on this particular group's ability to somehow survive many bloody battles, but he might actually be operating with some knowledge gained from Bran about who will and who won't survive the coming battle. Just something to check back in on after next episode. This leads to a conversation about Bran's title. Bran claims to not want to be a knight, but a quick glance at Podrick reminds us that this isn't true. She has been craving knighthood since we first met her. So, as a way to thank Brienne for her loyalty and honestly reward her for being the most honorable knight in spirit on this show, Jamie anoints Brienne as a knight. In the name of the warrior, I charge you to be brave. In the name of the father, I charge you to be just. In the name of the mother, I charge you to defend the innocent. Jamie proclaims her Sir Brienne of Tarth, a knight of the Seven Kingdoms, stating this episode's title and reminding us of the ways Brienne has already met all of these charges. She showed the warrior's bravery in fighting the Hound and in many other fights. She showed the father's justice in defending Jamie in this episode. And she showed the mother's defense of the innocent and rescuing Sansa and trying to protect Arya. Now, there's a further interesting reference in Jamie's vows here that I want to explain. Before I get to that, this video was sponsored by ExpressVPN. A VPN allows you to browse the internet with privacy without things like ad companies or hackers, spyware, any of that stuff tracking your data, secretly filtering your internet experience. ExpressVPN masks your IP address to make sure you aren't being monitored so you can have that peace of mind. You can live life knowing no one's peeping on you. Personally, I use ExpressVPN because, you know, when I'm researching some of the dark, gory history behind Game of Thrones, I don't want third parties thinking I'm too into that stuff on some weird personal level. I mean, I am. But that's none of their damn business. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN on the market and the number one VPN service rated by Tech Radar. And if you're in a different country, which many of our Game of Thrones fans who follow us are, you might not be able to access everything on Netflix and YouTube, other streaming services that you want to. But thanks to ExpressVPN, you can avoid those weird restrictions and you can just watch everything that you want to normally. The way the internet should be wherever you are. ExpressVPN lets you securely stream or download content from anywhere, anytime. It's less than $7 a month with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free by clicking on the link in the description box, expressvpn.com slash newrockstars. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash newrockstars for three months free with the one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash newrockstars to learn more. Take back your internet privacy.
privacy today. A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms is also the name of George R.R. Martin's Duncan Egg series. Following the young Aegon V and Duncan the Tall, a famous knight whom George R.R. Martin has more or less confirmed that Brienne of Tarth directly descended from. So by repeating these sacred vows while laying his sword on Brienne's shoulders, Jaime is not only realigning the twin swords of Ned Stark's ice, he's renewing his vows as a knight, the vows he broke by slaying the Mad King. And I just love the way this plays as a sweet, sacred exchanging of vows on the eve of battle, similar to the way Will Smith and Vivica exchanged vows on the eve of Annihilation and Independence Day, facing an enemy that they also intended to give a cold, infecting the central hub and wait for the drones to die out. Meanwhile, we catch up with the ways all the other characters spend their last nights on Earth. For Grey Worm and Masande, it's a promise to retire to the beaches of Noth, Masande's home island. Grey Worm promises to bring her there, but assuming these lovers are doomed, perhaps it will just be her body that he brings there. John meets with his brothers of the Night's Watch, Samuel Tarley, Dolores Ed, and his direwolf ghost, Woof! finally reappearing despite his absence all of last season. Ed says, and now our watch begins. As the three brothers remember their brothers who died, like Gren and Pip, and gaze out over the battlement, framed deliberately to evoke their watch on the capital W wall. Arya initially checks in with the Hound and Beric Dondarrion, revealing that he too is no longer on her kill list. And Beric, always the cleric, perceives this battle as part of the destiny laid out by the Lord of Light. This is his moment. But the Hound's hilarious dismissal to this whole thing suggests that, at least from the show's perspective, this battle might not explore the prophecies of Azor Ahai that deeply. It is worth remembering that Jon was freaking resurrected with the power of the Lord of Light. So, unless the show plans on just leaving that unexplained altogether, if it's not addressed in this battle, Lady Melisandre must have some explaining to do before the final episode. Arya ditches these old sh** for Gendry, whereas before their conversation was all about death, this later scene embraces life. Arya's entire demeanor changes when Gendry tells her, I'm Robert Baratheon's bastard. And Arya's like, Mmm, yes please. And instead of asking Gendry how many white walkers he's killed, this scene, the number she wants to know is the women he's knighted. And she wants to knight him, only to know what this feels like on the night before she might die. And yes, this is a longtime companion she once begged to come with her to Winterfell. I could be your family. You wouldn't be my family, you'd be my lady. And now the union of these two pays off the promise made by Gendry's father in the first episode of the series. I have a son, you have a daughter, we'll join our houses. Arya disrobes, relax, revealing scars on her side. Presumably these were given to her by the Waif and Bravos, even if those wounds were in slightly different spots. I just think Gendry's recognition of these scars is meant to mirror Daenerys seeing Jon's scars shortly before they rocked the boat. In both cases, these scars show that this character is a completely changed person from where they started, and that this person possesses an inner power that their partner doesn't truly appreciate. House Mormont briefly reunites with Lady Lyanna Mormont, barking at her cousin that she insists on fighting, and she's probably safer out of the crypts anyway. And Sam gives Jorah his Tarly family Valyrian steel sword, Heartsbane, bringing up Jorah's father, Gior Mormont, who is a father figure to Sam and John at the Wall. Gior gave Jorah's birthright family sword Longclaw to John, so now Sam is rebalancing the scales by rearming this knight with Valerian steel, which he will wield in Gior's memory. Then back at the hearth, Podrick sings. High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. This song is called Jenny's Song, or Jenny of Old Stones. It first came up in George R. Martin's 
Storm of Swords. Florence and the Sheen actually covered it in the episode's closing credits. Jenny of Old Stones was a strange and lovely girl from the Riverlands who famously claimed to have been descended from the Children of the Forest. The Maesters of the Citadel actually just reminded us of this last season. It brings to mind the work of Jenny of Old Stones, the charlatan who claimed descent from the Children of the Forest. Haha, <laughs> yeah, those old Maesters are full of sh Sam knows that better than anyone. Because these idiots were equally skeptical of the Three-Eyed Raven, the White Walker's existence, the wall ever falling. So if they were wrong about all that stuff, they might also have been wrong about Jenny of Oldstones, who could have been connected to the Children of the Forest, okay? Anyway, the important part is that Jenny and Prince Duncan Targaryen were lovers, and Prince Duncan gave up his crown for her. This might connect to Jon, a similar Targaryen prince who seems willing to give up his crown for his love for Danny. This song, Jenny of Oldstones, was a favorite of Jenny's old friend, a woods witch called the Ghost of Highheart, rumored to actually be one of the children of the forest herself. Jenny brought this witch to court where she prophesied that the prince that was promised would come from the bloodline of the Mad King and Rhaella Targaryen, Danny's parents and Jon's grandparents. And in the books, the Ghost of Highheart was right about pretty much everything else she predicted. But anyway, this Ghost of Highheart loves this song about Jenny. And in the books, we only ever hear the first line, but now the show's writers filled out the rest of the lyrics. They described Jenny dancing with ghosts in the Hall of Kings, ones whose names she couldn't remember, to spin away all of her sorrow and pain. These lyrics are probably referencing the tragedy of Summerhall, a mysterious fire that swept through the Targaryen pleasure home in Dorne. It killed both King Aegon V and Sir Duncan the Tall, his Kingsguard. These are Duncan Egg from the books, but much older, also Brienne's ancestor Dunk the Tall. But this fire also killed Prince Duncan, who was Jenny's lover. And this idea of forgetting those who are lost also evokes what Bran and Sam were talking about earlier with history, that forgetting a name and history being erased is really the ultimate form of death. Now, it was rumored that this Jenny song was actually written by Rhaegar Targaryen, Daenerys' brother, Jon's father, who famously loved to sing and famously sang a song at the tourney of Harrenhal that made Lyanna Stark, Jon's mother, weep and presumably fall in love with him, leading to Jon's conception. Danny even reminds us of Rhaegar's love of singing immediately after this. My brother Rhaegar, everyone told me he was decent and kind, that he liked to sing. So essentially, Patrick might be singing the exact soundtrack to Rhaegar's sperm dunking on Lyanna's egg and giving us Egg John. Pod singing this song follows the tradition of pre-battle shanties, like Bronze singing the reigns of Castamere with Lannister soldiers before Blackwater, or the men in Jaws singing Show Me the Way to Go Home. And actually listen to the first four notes of Podrick's song. High in the halls. The composer, Jawadi, actually used the same notes from the melody of Pippin's pre-battle song, The Edge of Night and Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Home is behind the world ahead. And this whole montage with Pod singing over it appears to be a direct homage to Return of the King, which played over a similarly bleak sequence intercutting among the charging soldiers, the orc archers, and those away from the conflict. Apparently, next episode will be based very much on the Battle of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings, the second movie, The Two Towers. But more on that next week. But this montage here shows us all the characters, including Arya and Gendry, post-coitus. Arya gazes away blankly, perhaps suggesting that she will always feel like the stranger, alienated from society, and really never feeling the true connection of family. Jon finally tells Daenerys the truth in the crypts, which Daenerys initially denies, and she frames this as a source of conflict between them. If it were true, it would make you the last male heir of House Targaryen, and you'd have a claim to the Iron Throne. But you know what? There doesn't necessarily have to be conflict here. They could just marry if they really love each other and rule as co-monarchs if they wanted. Now before you Highlander nerds saying there can only be one, there actually is some historical precedent for co-monarchies. Past Targaryen couple 
couples did sort of co-rule, like King Jaehaerys and Queen Alysanne. But we have to look at it from Daenerys' perspective. She emphasizes the word male, suggesting an adherence to old patriarchal rules. And as we saw with Jaime knighting Brienne, that old patriarchy doesn't have to matter anymore. But ultimately, Daenerys might not want to share the Iron Throne. It's not a love seat. And Jon might not fully trust her judgment after learning of her wrath against Sam's father and brother and her near wrath against Jaime Lannister. So we'll just have to see if this conflict complicates their cooperation in the coming battle. Before they can even discuss solutions, three horns blow, which according to Night's Watch protocol means the sighting of White Walkers. Jon gives Danny a subtle nod and she departs, implying that, at least for now, whatever strategy they had is still a go. But it's worth noting that despite Daenerys ordering Tyrion to go down to the crypts, Tyrion remains outside, here on the battlement, like he was at the Battle of Blackwater. So I'm guessing that whatever knowledge Bran shared with him must have made Tyrion feel like he needs to be outside for this fight. Or perhaps Tyrion now knows that the dead of the crypts will rise, and he doesn't want to be anywhere near that. The final image of the episode shows the White Walkers looming upon Winterfell, showing a row of at least a hundred White Walker officers on horseback. Craster gave around a hundred of his male babies to the Night King for transformation into White Walkers, but these could also be from other similar donors that we don't know about across the North over the ages. The big thing to note here is that the Night King and Viserion do not appear to be among them. I have speculated where they could be, like for example that whole theory that the Night King plans to target King's Landing first, convert Cersei's forces and the Golden Company, and then return north, which could pay off Bran's vision from season 6 of that shadow of a dragon over King's Landing. But now that we know the Night King's real mission is to erase human history, there's actually a pretty major source of Westerosi history outside the Three-Eyed Plant, the Citadel at Old Town. The Night King torching that library would turn historical records to ash, turning it into kind of a real-world lost library of Alexandria that I've compared it to in the past, and make those skeptical maesters overfill their chamber pots. This way, the Night King could take care of other business across the continent while avoiding the trap being set for him by Bran and Jon and the others. And he would kind of trick Jaime and the rest with a misdirect, just like Jaime was fooled by a misdirect by Robb Stark in his direwolf in the Battle of the Whispering Wood, which was brought up this episode. This final hour before the battle is titled A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, a nod to Brienne's anointing as a knight and to Jaime Lannister. A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms implies a warrior defending the whole realms of men over one particular faction. Anointed knights like Sir Jaime Lannister, Sir Brienne of Tarth, Sir Jorah Mormont, Sir Davos Seaworth, and technically Sir Sander Clegane since he was briefly part of the King's Guard, though he hates knighthood and hand titles. All of these knights are manning these front lines against the other knight, the Long Knight, the Night King. Brienne of Tarth's informal knighthood tells us that these characters can be deserving of knighthood despite not meeting all the traditional qualifications. So I think that we can look at all of these warriors facing this standoff against death to protect the realm as Knights of the Seven Kingdoms. But which of these knights is most likely to die in the battle? Comment down below with your thoughts. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EAVoss. And if you happen to live in the LA area, come check out my live comedy show, Darkest Timeline Comedy, on May 3rd and every first Friday thereafter. The last show sold out, so you gotta get your tickets early, friends. Thank you for watching, and as gross as Tormund's story was, just be grateful you won't ever have to actually see it in your head like Bran does.